Howdy and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. I want to again thank all the listeners for your continued great feedback on this podcast. I hope you'll take a minute to leave a review on iTunes so other Texas history lovers can find the show. And don't forget to send in your suggestions for stories that you'd like to learn more about. Well, it's primary election season here in Texas, in case you haven't noticed. And elections in Texas always make for good stories. Today, you're going to learn about a gubernatorial election that resulted in an armed standoff in the Capitol and the Supreme Court that changed Texas history based on a semicolon. So let's go back to 1873 and get wise about Texas. 1873 was a tough time in Texas. Reconstruction was in full swing. A few years before, the radicals in the U.S. Congress had replaced presidential reconstruction with military reconstruction. Federal troops began entering Texas to enforce the Reconstruction laws in 1865. The military demanded strict loyalty and threatened the antebellum and wartime Texas leaders with a loss of their political power. The citizens feared a loss of their economy and lifestyle because of the Federal's view on civil rights. It was an uncertain time. The military was slow to impose its will, however, because there were relatively few troops in Texas and most of the troops were on the frontier. There was also a lot of turnover in the upper echelons of the military. There were eight different commanders of the federal forces in Texas from the end of the war until 1870. But there was a great deal of tension between the citizens and the occupying forces in the early 1870s. The radical Republicans in Texas won an 1868 election to convene a constitutional convention and draft a new state constitution. One of the leaders of those radicals was Edmund J. Davis, or E.J. Davis. But the Republican Party was split over the provisions of that new proposed constitution. The moderate wing was led by former governors Andrew J. Hamilton and Elijah M. Pease. Eventually, the two factions ran against each other in the 1869 election for governor, and the radical E.J. Davis prevailed. Now, Edmund J. Davis was born in St. Augustine, Florida in 1827. His father died, and he moved to Texas when he was just 21 years old with his mother and three siblings. They settled in Galveston initially, but Davis shortly moved to Corpus Christi and became a lawyer. He then moved to Laredo to become a customs inspector and deputy custom collector. Then he moved to Brownsville, where he was the district attorney and served as the district judge, appointed, interestingly enough, by Governor Elijah Pease, who would later become his political opponent. He was a district judge in 1861 when the secession convention occurred in Texas. Davis was a staunch unionist like Sam Houston and tried to get elected to the convention but was defeated. After Texas seceded, Davis refused to take the oath of loyalty to his new country, just like Sam Houston, and he vacated his judicial office in April 1861. Unlike Sam Houston, however, Davis chose to take up arms against his former neighbors. He was loud and proud of his union sentiments and was soon forced to flee to Mexico. From there, he traveled to Washington and met with President Lincoln, who gave him a colonel's commission and authorized him to recruit what became the 1st Texas Cavalry in the United States Army. That regiment was organized in New Orleans. It sailed to Sabine Pass but did not participate in the battle. It later sailed to Galveston, but the Confederates had retaken Galveston before the unit arrived, so it sailed back to Louisiana. It later fought in several campaigns in Louisiana, including some against my great-great-great-grandfather's unit. Davis's unit returned to Brownsville during the Rio Grande campaign, 
and he was promoted to general and commanded General Joseph J. Reynolds' cavalry in Texas. Davis remained in Texas after the war as a radical Republican. He ran for that governor in that 1869 race, and his opponent was the moderate Republican Andrew Johnson. Someone told President Grant that Johnson's moderates had sold out to the former Confederates, whatever that meant, so Davis's old boss, General Joseph Reynolds, took control of the election. The Army made sure that Davis supporters controlled the polling places and generally supervised the election. There was also reported to be a bunch of voter fraud on both sides, but in any event, after the federal government ignored the moderates' pleas for an investigation, Davis was inaugurated the governor. Now, to put it as mildly as I can, Davis turned out to be the most hated governor in history. He controlled the legislature, which passed an act requiring all able-bodied men to join the militia. It also gave Davis command of the militia and declare martial law any time, which he did. He, chained, he charged the counties where he declared martial law for the cost of the martial law that he imposed. He also had a state police force, which was basically his own private police force. In fact, during the debate in the legislature on the militia bill, he had several opposing legislators arrested and held illegally. While they were away uh, being held, the legislature passed the bill. So that's, you know, that's a good way to do it if you can get away with it, I guess. The Democrats eventually mobilized, and in the election of 1873, Richard Koch defeated Davis by a margin of two to one. But this is Texas, so that was not the end of the story. Now, the stakes were high in the 1873 election. The radical Republican Davis wanted to hold on to the considerable power he had given himself, and the largely conservative citizenry, mostly Democrats, were ready for Reconstruction to be over and to be free from the oppression that they had endured under the Davis administration. So the newly defeated sheriff of Harris County, A.B. Hall, arranged for a warrant against a Mr. Joseph Rodriguez, on a charge of voting twice in that 1873 election. Rodriguez was actually arrested in Travis County, and Rodriguez brought a habeas corpus proceeding in the Supreme Court to seek his release, saying his arrest was wrongful. Now, interestingly, Rodriguez was represented by former governor and Davis enemy, Andrew Hamilton, and by former Harris County District Judge Chauncey Sabin. The state moved to dismiss the proceedings as wholly trumped up by the sheriff. Now, why would he do that? Well, one of Rodriguez's arguments was that he couldn't be guilty of a crime of voting twice because the election itself was illegal. Of course, if it was illegal, then Davis would remain governor. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a detailed procedural discussion of why this case was in the Supreme Court, but we do need to take a look at the Supreme Court at this time. When General Reynolds interfered with the 1873 election, Governor Pease resigned, stating that he was, quote, unwilling to become in any way responsible for the course being pursued by the military commander and the administration in Washington, close quote. So that left Texas in control of the military and resulted in the Davis victory. Now he got to appoint three justices to the Supreme Court. So he appointed, Davis appointed Lemuel Evans, who in fact was a moderate Republican, he also appointed Wesley Ogden, who was a Unionist Republican from New York, who had come to Texas in 1849. The third justice he appointed was Moses Walker from Ohio, who had fought many battles against his new fellow citizens and had come to Texas with the military occupation in 1868. Evans later stepped down to be replaced by John McAdoo, 
at the time the ex parte Rodriguez court, uh, case had come before the court. Now, the case turned on the interpretation of a provision in the Texas Constitution of 1869, and here's that provision, quote, All elections for state, district, and county offices shall be held at the county seats of the several counties until otherwise provided by law, semicolon, and the polls shall be opened for four days from 8 a.m. until 4 p.m. of each day, close quote. Now, in earlier, in March 1873, the legislature had passed a law approved by Davis that each justice precinct in a county would constitute an election precinct. It also provided that the election would be only one day, with the polls open from 8 to 6. So if the Supreme Court decided that the phrase, quote, otherwise provided by law, close quote, allowed the legislature to change both the location of the polls and the number of days they could be open, then the election would be legal and Davis would lose. If the court decided that otherwise provided by law applied only to the phrase before the semicolon and not the number of days the polls should be open, the election would be void and Davis would remain in power. So when the time came for closing arguments in, that, in the hearing, the state's lawyer made a passionate closing argument drawing on the popular sentiment to end Reconstruction. And here's some of the things he said, quote, Three times have the people of Texas, since the surrender, attempted to establish civil government. Once they were remanded by the federal power to a condition of territorial vassalage. Once, if we may believe the eloquent adversary, they were defrauded of their choice by a military commander. And now he himself leads the van in the third assault and attempts by the more insidious approaches of judicial construction to stifle again the popular voice and substitute a reign of anarchy. Why, on the very eve of the meeting of the people's representatives, is this strange haste shown to test this question? Why does the counsel of Rodriguez assume upon the facts the position of a prosecutor? These are questions which all can answer. Close quote. Now, in response, and with equal passion, former Governor Hamilton argued, quote, I do not take my lessons in patriotism from gentlemen who in 1861 were members of a mere mob, styling itself a state convention, which was called by about 40 persons and which gloried in overthrowing the state government and tearing down the United States flag. I never fought against the flag of my country, neither did I learn those lessons in a foreign land, in Mexico, under a carpetbag emperor who was afterwards shot for interfering with the constitutional rights and liberties of a free people, close quote. So it sounds to me like the real issue in the case was Reconstruction rather than Rodriguez. In any event, the court decided that the semicolon between the phrases otherwise provided by law and the phrase providing for a four-day election meant that the election was in fact illegal and invalid. Now I will note that in 1869, if an election's held in only the county seat of a county, four-day voting probably made sense because people would be traveling by horse and wagon or foot to the county seat to vote. But if you spread the voting around the county, a one-day election makes a little more sense. So the court certainly could have found the error in the conduct of the election harmless, but the court relied on that semicolon and changed Texas history. Now, the decision in Ex parte Rodriguez has led to that particular Supreme Court becoming known derisively as the semicolon court. Almost 100 years later, another justice on the Texas Supreme Court noted that the Ex parte Rodriguez was the origin of hostility towards semicolons and those who rely on them in statutory construction. In an 1898 history of Texas, the author Wooten pointed out 
that no Texas lawyer likes to cite opinions from the semicolon court, and their cases were tabooed by the common consent of the legal profession. That feeling was not universally true, however, because the semicolon court's cases were occasionally cited, including in one case dealing with insanity, so we'll just leave it at that. The reaction to the decision was swift and violent. Armed mobs formed and moved on the Capitol, demanding that Davis vacate the office. Despite the Supreme Court's ruling, the newly elected members of the legislature started to gather in Austin. Davis actually refused to leave the Capitol building, and he holed up on the first floor. As Texans like to say, here's where it got Western. Davis summoned the Travis Guards to protect him and enforce the Supreme Court ruling. Now, the Travis Guards were formed in Austin in 1840 to protect against Indian attacks. Named for William Barrett Travis, the Union served as an escort for President Sam Houston in his second inauguration as president in 1841. The unit later disbanded for a time, but was reorganized in 1851. In 1861, the Travis Guards became part of the 6th Texas Infantry for the Confederate Army. The unit was captured in 1863 and it was captured again in 1864. Well, E.J. Davis should have studied his Texas history and where the sentiments of the Travis Guards might lay, because though he had summoned them to the first floor of the Capitol to protect him and enforce the Supreme Court decision, the unit got there and changed their mind and instead decided to protect the newly elected Governor Koch, and they secured the hallways so that the legislature could convene on the second floor of the Capitol. Davis had also petitioned U.S. President Ulysses Grant to send federal troops to the state Capitol to keep Davis in office, and was waiting to hear from Washington on that request. Now, speaking of the legislature, in the middle of the night, before the legislative session was to begin, the newly elected legislators scaled the walls of the then two-story Capitol, and entered the second floor through the windows, where they became protected by those Travis guards who had changed their mind about protecting Governor Davis, and they were ready to convene in session and inaugurate Governor Koch. So the standoff was at hand. Now, Koch held the advantage in this standoff because the legislative hall was on the second floor of the Capitol, and so were the members of the legislature. So as two armed governments occupied the Texas Capitol, a couple of important events occurred. First, President Grant refused to provide any support to Davis and advised him to abide by the vote of the people. Second, the legislature went ahead and convened and inaugurated Governor Koch. Davis finally surrendered and resigned his office on January 19, 1874. Now, it is reported that as he left the Capitol building, mumbling about how unfair everything was, future Texas Governor John Ireland kicked him in the pants. By the way, as he left, Davis locked the door to the governor's office and took the only key. So Richard Koch had to take an axe to the door to sit at his new desk as governor. Now, E.J. Davis went on to run for governor again in 1880, getting trounced by Oren Roberts. He ran for Congress in 1882, resulting in another defeat. He could have become the customs collector at Galveston, but didn't like President Rutherford Hayes, so he refused that appointment. He went on and practiced law in Austin and died in Austin in 1883. Richard Koch, on the other hand, was a fairly successful governor. The new Constitution of 1876, which by the way is our current Constitution, was adopted during his term. He also presided over the opening of my alma mater, Texas A&M University. He was re-elected by a margin of three to one and was later elected to the U.S. Senate from Texas in 1876, and his admirers in the Senate nicknamed him Old Brains. He served in the Senate until 1894 and died in Waco in 1897. 
The Cope Davis election and the resulting standoff is another story that seems like it can only happen in Texas. My friend and author James Haley astutely observes that in his history of the Texas Supreme Court that Texans largely view justice as the will of the people with the Supreme Court's job to give it effect. Perhaps that explains why the Constitution under that was adopted under Governor Cope provided for the election of judges, which remains our system to this day. So now we come to the segment of the show called Getting There, and unfortunately, the old Capitol building where this standoff occurred burned down and was replaced by our current Capitol building, but it is on the same spot. You can actually join the 2nd Regiment of the Texas State Guard today and belong to the same unit that traces its lineage to the Travis Rifles. So if you really want to connect to this story, you can look into enlisting there. Governor E.J. Davis is buried in the Texas State Cemetery, and his grave is easy to find because it's marked with what some folks have described as an obnoxiously tall monument. Governor Richard Koch's grave can be seen in the Oakwood Cemetery in Waco, and I'll put some pictures up on the website of those places. Another interesting place to visit is the old Supreme Court chamber in the current Capitol building, and this is not where the semicolon court met, but it is where the Supreme Court met from 1888 to 18. To 1959, and it's located on the third floor of the Capitol building. I also encourage you to check out the Texas Supreme Court Historical Society website for more information on the history of the Texas Supreme Court, including the semicolon court. And you can see that at www.texascourthistory.org. Well, that wraps it up for another episode of Wise About Texas. Be sure and leave a review on iTunes so other Texas history lovers can find the show. I hope you'll like and share the Wise About Texas Facebook page and follow the show on Twitter at Wise About Texas. So until next time, thanks for listening. God bless Texas and we'll see you down the road.